You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Ephesians today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on. If you don't have an app or a Bible, um, it'll, most of the verses I read, I think, are on the screen for you. But um, as, we, as we jump into chapter 2, we're coming off of chapter 1, naturally, because that's how numbers work. Um, but in chapter 1, Paul has described to us the God that we are called to worship, who he is, his attributes, how he's revealed himself as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in chapter 2, to, he turns the focus from God to us and what God has accomplished in us. And um, in, I'm going to cover the first seven verses. And in these first seven verses, it's kind of set up like good news and bad news. Um, you guys have people in your life that, that, that give you good news and bad news in pairs. And they always have to like kind of dramatically set it up instead of just telling you two pieces of information. They have to say, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which do you want first, right? Like, like they you know, try to soften everything by letting you choose. Um, some of you psychos would choose to receive the good news first, but no, not me. I always want the bad news first. Any bad news first people out there? All right, you're the biblical people, okay, because that's how the Bible's laid out here. We're going to look at the bad news first today and then look at the good news after the bad news. My wife will sometimes be like, you want the good news or the bad news? And I'll say, well, I want the bad news first. I always want bad news first so we can end on a good note. And she'll give me this like devastating news that I didn't know about. And then I'll be like, okay, well, now there's hope coming, so that's good. So what's the good news? And she'll be like, well, the good news is I still love you. And I'm like, well... That is good news, um, but it's not necessarily new information. It's not news that's more like olds, you know. It's, it's just not like, you know, but I can't let her see that I'm disappointed with that news. I'm like, oh, that is great news. Awesome. And then I'm just dwelling on the bad news. So I don't want you to leave church today dwelling on the bad news, all right? But we have three verses of really bad news to get through before we get to the good news, okay? So uh, two sermon points today, of course, good news and bad news. Bad news coming first, that we're spiritually dead in our sin. Um, Our sin brings us to a place of spiritual depravity. Um, The second thing we'll see is the good news, of course, that we're spiritually made alive in Christ, okay? So let's look at death first. Our spiritual state before Christ is we're dead. Um, Paul's going to make the case that we're even demonic. We're disobedient. We're doomed. We are depraved. There is nothing in ourselves that can resurrect us out of this predicament and situation that we find ourselves in. I don't know if you've ever watched the show The Walking Dead. Um, I got into it, but I just didn't have the stamina to actually finish the whole series. Um, So I won't spoil any endings or anything. But um, I watched a lot of episodes of The Walking Dead. That's where, you know, the the sheriff guy's like, Coral, if you you, you know what show I'm talking about, right? And so they're all kind of, the the world is just completely filled with zombies, and they kind of stagger around. Um, These are people where they've lost any sense of humanity, but they're just these gory, kind of bloody-looking zombies that feed on flesh, and they kind of aimlessly wander around, and then when they smell uh, human flesh, they go after it to eat it. It's really a gross show. It's, it's very gruesome, um, but they've, they've completely lost a sense of humanity and morality. They're not even really human anymore. Um, they call them walkers because they're just kind of walking around, and AMC's depiction of zombies in The Walking Dead is kind of the Bible's depiction of you without Jesus. Um, you are aimlessly wandering 
wandering through life, if you are without Christ, you're feeding your flesh, your fleshly desires to just find what you want and do what you want and, and live how you want and do everything selfishly. You've lo- you, you lost and really don't have any sense of moral compass or morality or God's law of what is right and wrong. And if you're without Christ, I mean, the, the Bible's description of you is pretty gross. It's, it's pretty depleted and, um, and disgusting. Verse 1 begins with this description. It says, you're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so you have this picture of what your spiritual state is apart from Christ. Now, if we're honest, most humans disagree with this verse. Most humans will disagree with the fact that they're dead in trespasses and sins. And the reason is, is because we don't feel like we're dead, right? Um, and, and unbelievers even seem to do good things. People who aren't Christians seem to do things that are good, right? People who don't uh, love Jesus or don't believe in God can, um, I mean, they can feed the hungry and they can give their money to charities and things like that. They can seemingly do good things. So how in the world can the Bible look at people apart from Christ and say that they're dead? Maybe they're oh, not well off. Maybe they need some improvement. But how does Paul come to the position that they are dead? Well, see, things done positive or warm and the implications from those things may seem good, but apart from God Almighty, nothing uh, that seems good can actually be good. Let me try to explain that to you. And the reason is, is because it's vanity. It, think of it this way. If you spend your life doing lots of small little good things, but you miss the greatest thing. Your life is just a great irony and vanity. You have spent all the time doing little goods and you've missed the greatest good. And, and, and actually, um, it, it's, it's, it's really a slap in the face to your creator um, because you've manufactured your own morality of what is good and not acknowledge where it actually comes from. And so because of that, Even things that seem to be good, if they're done apart from Christ, actually are just dead works. John Calvin, uh, the famous reformer in his commentary on this, wrote about um, what spiritual death was like. And and I want to read sort of a lengthy quote from John Calvin, but he says it this way. He says, some kind of life, I acknowledge, does remain in us while we are still at a distance from, from Christ. For unbelief does not altogether destroy the outward senses or the will or the other faculties of the soul. But what has this to do with the kingdom of God? What has it to do with a happy life so long as every sentiment of the mind and every act of the will is death? Let this then be held as a fixed principle. Listen to what he says. Let this then be fixed as a, or let be held as a fixed principle that the union of our soul with God is the true and only life. And I want to pause there and reiterate it. The, the union, the, the uniting, the union of our soul with God is the true and only life. And that out of Christ, we are altogether dead because sin, the cause of death, reigns in us. And so Calvin is really just agreeing with what Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that without Jesus, you are dead. D-E-D, dead. Dead as a doorknob, right? There's nothing, I know I spelled that wrong, that was a joke. Y'all just didn't laugh enough. Um, There's nothing you can do. And, And what Paul is doing is he's setting up how impossible it is to save yourselves. Because if you're just sick in sin and not dead in sin, then maybe you could find the right medicine and and, uh, heal yourself. 
But Paul's analogy is that you're spiritually dead. We were recently at a conference, and uh, Ryan Kwan, one of the pastors in the Acts 29 Network, was speaking on evangelism, and he, he shared some statistics that I thought were impactful. He shared that 73% of Americans believe in heaven. I, I was actually kind of shocked at that number. Uh, almost three out of every four people in America believe in the existence of an afterlife that they call heaven. Um, only slightly less than that believe in hell, by the way. 60% of Americans believe that there is some sort of hell. There's debates on you know, what that looks like, but 60% of people believe in hell. And so that's, those are pretty high numbers. But listen to this, this last stat that he shared, only 1% of Americans believe they're going to hell. What this tells me is that human tendency is to assume that afterlife exists and be right on that, but also assume that any wrath or punishment is not for them, is that they're good enough. You see, human tendency is to assume we're good, but the Bible assures us we're dead. We're not good, and we're not just bad off. We're dead in sin. And so why do people think that? Why do people tend to think that they're okay? Why do people tend to think that they're, they're good when the Bible paints them as very bad? I've actually talked to people about this a lot, just in personal evangelism, and the answer that I hear most, of, most often is, well, I've never killed anybody. Have you heard that said? It's like, like what do you want, a, a trophy? Like, good job, you know, day, day 6,000 of not killing someone. Like, hooray you, you know. Um, I, I just, I never understood that under, understanding as, well, if I never killed anybody, then that must make me good. Um, think of it this way, if I could give you an analogy. If I were to pay you to house sit for me, I was going to be out of town for two or three weeks, and I pay you to come to my house, live in my house, and I give you a list of chores that need to be done while I'm gone. I need you to mow the grass. I need you to bring in the mail. I need you to take care of the dozens of pets that my wife and children have accumulated that need care, um, right? And, and so I pay you to do all those things, and I give you a list, and I'm like, hey, I'm back in a few weeks, but I need you to take care of these deuces, and I leave, and I've paid you to be there, and I come back, and the grass is high, and the, the mail's overflowing onto the street, and the animals are nearly starved to death, and there's, there's just like nastiness everywhere, and you're sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, right? And I come in, and I say, what in the world happened? You didn't do what I paid you to do, and you're like, well, yeah, but you know, the house is still here. I didn't burn the house down. Does that make you a good house sitter? No, of course not. You didn't do the worst possible thing, but you are far from doing what you were expected to do. And, and this is the Bible's picture of humanity, is that when we don't do what God has told us is right and wrong, it leads to us being spiritually dead. In verse 1, it says that the reason for our spiritual death is trespasses and sins. Uh, the word sin in Greek is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. It's actually an archery term for you bow hunters. And it, it was a Greek word with a word picture built into it of an archer when he draws back his bow and releases an arrow and misses the target that he's shooting for. And so hamartia, translated sin in the Bible, means that we've missed God's mark. God has told us what's right, God's told us what's wrong, and we've missed it. We've shot either off from the target or we've turned around and shot in the complete opposite direction. Now, the other word translated into English as trespasses um, is paroptoma, and it means to step off of a path. 
This isn't quite so strong as the word sin. It means to just, you know, accidentally step off the path that you're on. These are like what I call oopsies, right? These are the things that's like, yeah, I messed up, but I wasn't really intentionally trying to do something wrong. Well, the, the reality is, is we, we are actually able to admit that our sin, the things that we do that are just wretched and bad, um, like just condemn us. But we have trouble admitting that our trespasses also condemn us. Our mistakes condemn us. Um, I, I, I think of it like, like our youngest son, Tava, is the most reckless human being on the planet. He just he doesn't pay attention to where he is. I'm nervous anytime there's like a cup of coffee in a room with him. I'm like, it's going over. It's happening. Like, I'll never take him to Blinko Glass. Um, it would be way too expensive. Like, the bill of him running through the Blinko Glass showroom would just be astronomical, right? Uh, because if, if he ran through Blinko Glass like a bull in a china shop, it doesn't matter if he didn't mean to knock over all the vases. They still need to be paid for. And, and, and the reality is, is recklessness is still wrongfulness. And so when we find ourselves standing before God, we can't just be like, well, those were a bunch of oopsies. I didn't mean to do it. God has given us a standard and that standard has brought us to a place where we are dead in those trespasses and sins. And so the reality is that's all of us. And um, if, if that's not strong enough, a strong enough word for you, death, Paul's going to up to Annie in verse two. He says, not only are you spiritually dead apart from Christ, but you're on the same team with Satan himself, right? Like this is getting extreme. This is, this is like worse than the walking dead. Verse two says, in which you once walked in your death and your trespasses and your sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan himself, by the way. Um, so he's saying you're following the devil rather than following the Lord. He, said, he calls him the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is mentioned again in chapter 6, the last chapter of Ephesians, uh, where, where Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so Satan's dominion is described in Ephesians as this world, that he is present, that he's deceiving nations, he's a longing to keep people in their spiritual deadness, but the church is awakened. And so while Satan's dominion is the world, Christ's dominion is his church, and he has sent his church into the world to wake the dead. That's our task as Christians. That's why every week when we leave New Heights churches, we've gathered together. We are sent out as missionaries. We're not just dismissed. We're commissioned and sent as missionaries to wake the dead because you have a message of life and hope and grace that, that you carry with you and people around you that you know and love. The, the first three verses of this chapter describe them as dead in their trespasses and sins. And they desperately need someone to share the gospel with them. Not only are we demonic, we're disobedient. Um, that, that means that, that by our own will, we, we love our sin. We continue in our sin. Uh, that means we can't just say, well, the devil made me do it. Um, we, we have all the temptation we need in and of ourselves in our depravity. And so this twofold condition of we're sinners by nature, we're born into it, but we're also sinners by choice. We like what we're born into and we endorse it. leaves us in a position of just being doomed, um, just, just having no hope in and of ourselves. It's a doctrine that theologians call total depravity. It means that, that depravity affects every part of our being, everything that we do and everything that we are. It doesn't mean that you are as bad off as you can possibly be. So don't mishear me. It doesn't mean you do everything bad that you possibly could. So 
But it does mean that you are as bad off as you could possibly be. That means if you could think of the worst, most sinful human being, you are in the same boat as them. The doctrine of total depravity places Mother Teresa and Jeffrey Dahmer in the same predicament of needing a savior. That no matter how good your life may look or no matter how bad your life may look, everyone needs saved because everyone is born and endorses the sin in their life. Look at the universal scope of depravity in verse 3. It says, among whom we all once lived. There are no exceptions given. Everyone is dead in trespasses and sin. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everyone is doomed with this disease, without exception. In, in The Walking Dead, to, to kind of return to that illustration, there's a, there's a sobering reality that sets in in season one because you've got characters running from zombies and, you know, in good TV, even though the zombies are like dragging their limbs around and, and walking very slowly, they always seem to catch up with these, you know, very in shape characters. Um, but as they, as they fight to survive and as they band together and as they run away from these massive crowds of zombies, of course, eventually some of the characters begin to die. And what they learn is that as characters die, they actually become zombies too. And there's this really sobering moment where the characters realize that even though they are living at that point, that they're all infected with this, this made-up contagion of zombieism. And, and it sinks in the reality that we all have this. This is, the, this is the way depravity is for us. There has to come a sobering moment in all of our lives where it sinks in. We realize that on our own, we will always walk directly against God's will. We'll always choose what serves us best rather than what serves God most. And when we come to that place, that's the position we need to be in where God can raise us to life. It's important for us to see our spiritual condition of death and sin, that we are the destitute in need of inheritance. We are the terminally ill in need of a cure. We are the spiritually dead in need of a resurrection. Romans 3.23 says, this is everyone. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how good you think you've been, no matter how many people you've wanted to kill and abstained from and not killed them, you're still dead in trespasses and sins. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when Jesus, in John chapter 3, encounters a man named Nicodemus. And the reason I love it so much is Nicodemus was probably the best possible representation of humanity that you could come up with. He, he knew the Bible better than anyone else in Israel. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel with a definite article there. So um, that means that he was, of, of all the people who lived in Israel, he was the expert. He knew God's word better than anyone else. He probably obeyed God's law in a very, very meticulous way. That, that if God were to come down and say, Israel, give me your best representation of holiness, Israel probably would have been like, hey, y'all, we need to go get Nicodemus. And he walks up to Jesus, and Jesus takes one look at him, and without hesitation says, you've got to be born again. He doesn't say, man, you're pretty good. He doesn't give him the Bon Jovi. You're halfway there living on a prayer. No, he looks at him and says, we've got to start over fresh. That depravity has infiltrated your soul so much that even the best of us needs, needs a new start, a new birth. And so that leads us to the good news, that we are made spiritually alive in Christ. 
And so all of this death and depravity and demonic activity lead us to a place of, of, of like Nicodemus, that, that we, we find ourselves hopeless without a Savior. But Jesus looks at us and he says, you must be born again. Well, how do we be born again? Well, I don't know if you remember your own birth. I don't. Um, I, I'm assuming most of you don't either. But you didn't, you didn't cause that to happen. You didn't bring that about. You didn't say, I want to be born into this family in this way and live in this place and be born at this time. You had no control over their circumstances. And it's a fitting analogy because uh, John 1, the same gospel of where we see Nicodemus talking to Jesus, says that we are born not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. That God brings about this new birth, this second birth in us. And verse 4 begins, but God that this transition happens, these three verses of bad news with just the worst thing we could ever imagine, that we're spiritually dead, there's nothing we can do for ourselves, it leaves no hope for us, but verse 4 comes screaming in with hope. It, it, it just reminds me of the great cinematic classic, Dumb and Dumber, when, when Lloyd Christmas looks at his woman he's been pursuing the whole movie, and he says, what are the chances of a guy like you and a girl like me actually ending up together? And she looks at him and she says, not good. And he says, well, like not good, like one in a hundred. And she says, more like one in a million. You remember what he says? So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. Right. That, that little bit of hope was all he needed. Right. And after reading the first three verses, I think I find myself spiritually like that. that man, there's just no hope. I need a little bit of hope in this. And then verse four comes screaming in with these two transitional words. But God, to quote the great a knight of your Sir Mix-a-Lot. I like big butts and I cannot lie. This butt in this part of the Bible comes screaming in at the exact right time because when it looks utterly hopeless for us, there's a big capital B and but God comes into our life. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. See, rich in mercy is pointing us back to chapter one as Paul has already described God being rich in this way with mercy and with grace and with love. And he used the word lavish, that he lavishes it upon us. You see, God enters into his mercy for this reason, because he's rich in it and he loves us. This is hard for me to even comprehend and understand. You see, infatuation happens naturally. We become infatuated with things that we love, football teams or hobbies, and it's easy for us to kind of fall out of that infatuation as well. But if you're in a relationship of romantic love, you know that love is a choice as well, that it is a very intentional action on your part. And this is how God's love is described in Scripture. Uh, the Greek word agape of unconditional love is a conscious choice from God, a choosing of God to pour out his rich love, grace, and mercy upon people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. But God... God has chosen to love me. And the timing of it is so important. We can't miss when God chose to love us. Romans 5.8 gets at this too. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for us? I, like, I know we're thinking, well, we weren't even born yet, but God in his foreknowledge and his omniscience knows all of the sins we would ever commit, and even seeing all of that, 
And seeing how unlovable we are, he makes a conscious choice to not be infatuated with us because he's somehow drawn to us, but because he is gracious and rich that he decides to lavish it upon us. And while we are sinners, Jesus dies for us. The timing is so important. When you are most unlovable, that's when God loved you and that's when you needed love the most. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five says, even when, here's time in again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So again, timing is important. Ask yourself, if you're a Christian, when were you made alive? If you were dead in trespasses and sins, when were you made alive? Was it when you walked an aisle at the church and knelt down and prayed a prayer? Was it when you went to church camp as a kid? Was it when you made the decision to finally uh, get in church and begin to attend faithfully? Was it when you told God, I'm done pretending, I'm going to be serious about this? No. The answer to all those questions is no. Verse 5 tells us when we were made alive, when we were dead. That's when God made us alive. That the only reason we made all those decisions I listed was because God brought us to life so that we could make decisions for the first time. Somehow, listen to this, somehow when Jesus got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Will Basham got up with him. And if you're in Christ, you were raised at that moment. It was taken care of, settled, and done 2,000 years ago. And then this parenthetical phrase is given to us, by grace you have been saved. In Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means that to translate it rightly in English would be very lengthy, but it would say, by grace you have been saved, by grace you are safe today, and by grace you will be saved forever. That's basically what Paul is saying in the Greek language. That means that all of our existence as a Christian is of grace. It's important for you to understand what this grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's a free gift of God. It's not just like on Christmas vacation. Oh, grace? Oh, she died 30 years ago. It's not just a word that we talk about. It's a posture. It's a culture for us as Christians. It is good news. It is the gospel. Grace is how we are alive. And without grace, we would just be the walking dead. Let me finish this passage with verses 6 and 7. It says, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think it's interesting that, that Paul doesn't just make his application this life here and now. He takes it to eternity and he takes the conversation to heaven. Why does he do that? Well, I mentioned that we're seated in heaven with Christ now. See, while we are in our physical bodies on earth right now, um, if we're apart from Christ, even though we can walk around and, and have motives and will and decisions and things like that, um, spiritually speaking, we're in a grave, emotive, and, and unable to do anything. And that's how he begins in verse 1. But then by the time we get to verse 6, he is saying, Christ has made us alive. And even though we remain on this earth with a mission given to us from Christ himself, but spiritually speaking, no longer are we in the grave. Spiritually speaking, we are seated with Jesus in heaven. 
Like spiritually, it is so sure that I will be saved. It's as if I'm chilling on the front porch with Jesus in heaven right now. It is guaranteed that I will be in heaven forever. Nothing in life can touch me. Nothing can stop that. Nothing will will make me dead again because Jesus has secured it with his immeasurable riches. And verse 7 calls it exactly that, that his grace is immeasurable. I mean, this immediately took me back to God's conversation with Abram, who he says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham because you will be the father of many nations and your descendants will be as numerous and as many as the grains of sand on the shores and the stars in the heavens. The point God is making is, Abraham, you're not going to be able to count your your descendants. And when he says your descendants, the rest of the Bible actually explains, it means those who are people of faith. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, we're justified by faith in our Savior as well. And the descendants are so numerous that they are immeasurable. And not only are the descendants themselves, that God's kingdom, his church Christians are immeasurable. We can never imagine uh, how many people God has actually redeemed and saved, but each one of them has an amount of sin in their life that is also immeasurable immeasurable. Could you imagine trying to count your sin? I'd struggle to count my sins just this past week, let alone for my whole life and let alone what I will commit for the rest of my life. However many years God decides to give me. So you take that in Will's life and multiply that by every redeemed person who has ever lived is living now or ever will live. And you have a massive amount of sin that needs an even more massive amount of grace. Jesus went to Calvary, and we think he just put a cross beam on his shoulders to carry a cross. No, it's much heavier than that. It was an immeasurable amount of sin that was placed upon your Savior's shoulders. And those soldiers told him, you carry that, and you climb that mountain. And Jesus walks up Calvary's hill, not just with wood on his back, but with every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit on his shoulders, multiplied for every redeemed human that will ever live. And he carries that up and he willingly lays down his life to pay for all of it. And he writes the check with his immeasurable riches of grace. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.